This is a bit of an experiment in pedagogy, going it this way, and I've really never done it this way before, of giving the overview last night so that you have a sense of the whole, which I think is really important. And then today, spending more time on that first section of Ephesians. And my goal is to basically cover chapter 1 and chapter 2, and then preach from chapter 3 tomorrow. So that's the, that's the sense. So again, we're not quite at the level of the intensity of preaching this word on a smaller passage. But I think that, uh, and hopefully right now won't be too repetitive this morning of last night. We'll have new material to move into. So we're looking at Ephesians chapter 1. Virginia and I are really happy to be here. Uh, you know, Virginia is her given name, but when she was here, she was Jenny. So now I'm really confused in Bloomington as to how to call my wife. Webster. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least she didn't say Dr. Webster. Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, and I should have maybe said last night there's a church component that we're active in right now uh, ourselves, and it's an odd setup. We commute from Friday night to Sunday night to New York City, and I'm pastoring a small church plant in an old church several blocks from Central Park. And uh, we're wondering if physically we can keep up, but it's a wonderful group of about 100 people, uh, many of whom are just so hungry for the Word of God. They live in a context that... uh, uh, I think they're just really desirous of worship. They're, they're hungry for worship. They don't take it for granted. That's something very different from what we have found in the South, where nominal Christianity is just uh, so common that one of the first things you kind of have to do in the South is convince some people that they're not Christians, even though they think they're Christians. Uh, but in the Northeast, that tends to be very clear. And so it's been very helpful uh, for us spiritually, I think, to be engaged in that kind of ministry. I only say that to let you know that I haven't become just a theological reporter. Uh, I'm engaged with people in ministry and enjoying it very much and find Ephesians really very helpful. So again, Ephesians chapter 1, and uh, we have this opening greeting. Paul does not spend much time talking about himself. He says less about himself than I just did about myself. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to God's holy people or saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then there is this outburst of praise. One steady stream rhythmic grace, pulsating praise. The Greek word for bless or praise, some of your translations say bless, and some of them say praise, is the word from which we get eulogy, to speak well of someone. And we're accustomed to eulogies coming at the end of one's life. But here the eulogy comes at the beginning. He actually leads with a benediction. He doesn't conclude with a benediction. He begins with a benediction. He'll conclude with a a shorter benediction. 
But he leads with this. Now, do you know what actually got me into Ephesians in a more serious way than I had ever taken it? Was visiting one of the elders in our church in San Diego. This was about four years ago now. And uh, I went to visit Jack Heath because he was really too weak to come to worship anymore. He was in a uh, convalescent home, really nice setup. He formerly had been the director of the FBI in San Diego and Las Vegas, and was one of Hoover's boys, uh, a man with great dignity, a personal friend of Carl Henry, the theologian, and uh, just a wonderful Christian. And I went to visit Jack, and uh, Jack sort of had his legs propped up for circulation in a leather recliner, and uh, we had talked for a few moments, and he said, you know what I'd really like is for us to read Ephesians 1. It's my favorite chapter in the Bible. Now, I had not really paid much attention to Ephesians 1, and to me, probably at that point, it had just a lot of religious words strung together. I mean, it was great. I mean, it's the Bible. I know it's inspired, but I hadn't paid much attention to it because it just seemed like a lot of religious words. And he didn't even want me to read Ephesians chapter 1. Maybe he knew that I thought it was just a lot of religious words. I don't know. <laughs> he wanted Anne to read, his wife, to read Ephesians 1. So there are the three of us. And what came to my mind, even as Anne was reading, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. And I really sensed worship. And I sensed that now the pastor had come to visit the parishioner, and the parishioner had become the pastor, ministering to the parishioner, me. And the way that he took, you know, this says nothing about suffering. The first 13 verses say nothing particularly relevant to a person in great need, per se. But what impressed me was that he found his life rooted in the description that is here in Ephesians 1, 1 through 14. That this is what his life depended upon. And as he was in the closing days of his life, which actually took much longer, he died about a month ago. And Anne followed within 10 days. And so he went on much longer than I thought Jack would. But this is what he framed and rooted and founded his life in. The, uh, one of America's, I think, leading literary critics is George Steiner. George Steiner talks about a hermeneutical key for any great literature. A fourfold hermeneutical key. He says you've got to have trust, effort, embodiment, and humility. Trust, effort, embodiment, and humility. You have to trust that this text really is profound. It really does say something. That it is classic, not by mistake, but because of its significance. And Steiner's talking about literature in general. Although, I think he would certainly apply this to the scriptures. So you have to trust, and I saw in Jack really trusting his life to the truth of this 
Ephesians chapter 1. And then effort. And this is one of the things that just don't know how to convince ourselves of the effort that's required to turn Scripture into something that is really meaningful to us. It certainly doesn't become inspired. It is inspired. It is the Word of God. It doesn't become the Word of God because it becomes meaningful to us. But I think one really has to spend a considerable amount of time and effort oftentimes memorizing and meditating on Scripture helps that transition from, oh, kind of familiar to deeply meaningful. And I think that that is what Jack had done to Ephesians chapter 1. Trust, effort, and embodiment. The personal and existential understanding and reality of actually entrusting oneself and depending upon God's word to shape and to form and to frame one's life. But then the danger comes after you've spent a lot of time with Scripture. You've trusted yourself to it. You've made the effort and you've embodied the truth. The danger then is to become so familiar that you kind of uh, are in charge of it. You know it. And you almost can be proud about knowing it. And I think that's why Steiner puts in that fourth hermeneutical key of humility. You always sit under it. You're not ever overly familiar with it. There's always a mystery of the truth that you just don't completely uh, grasp. So what I learned from Jack was basically pay attention to this dog. <coughs> Take it seriously. Get into it. And he didn't say that in so many words. He really said it by his example. Now notice how it begins in verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who's blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. the pastoral spiritual direction that emerges from this uh, wonderful praise is where do you start? Where do you start? Where do you start every morning? Where do you start every week? Where do you start? Can you start here? Can you start with praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in love he predestined us for adoption to sonship. Can you start there? It's easy to start with blaming. It's easy to start with burdens. It's more difficult to start with blessings. Bless the Lord, O my soul, all that's within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. He forgives all our sins. He heals all our diseases. He redeems our life from the pit. Can we start there as a spiritual discipline? I mean, that, I think, is, is exceedingly important in the life of the believer to be disciplined enough to start with the big picture of God's blessing. That even if you you know are, are kind of consigned to a leather 
chair with your feet propped up for circulation and you're just getting weaker and weaker and weaker. Can you start here? Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That, I, I just, I think that's why this is not just sort of a, a rhetorical flourish to be dismissed as a great introduction to getting down to the really practical uh, new humanity ethic that Paul talks about from chapter 4 on. Uh, that's what, uh, and that's why we're actually doing, I think, the harder part of Ephesians. Because it doesn't strike us as immediately practical and relevant. It strikes us as kind of pretty theologically heavy. But this is where we ought to begin, I believe. Ian McEwen, in his novel Saturday, I think captures the general ethos of sort of the modern world through his 18-year-old character named Theo. And McEwen describes Theo as belonging to a sincerely godless generation. McEwen, no one in his bright, plate-glass, forward-looking school ever asked Theo to pray or sing an impenetrably cheery hymn. There is no entity, like a loving, redeeming God, there is no entity for him to doubt. His initiation in front of the TV before the dissolving towers, the World Trade Center towers, was intense, but he adapted quickly. And Theo has his own unique philosophy of life for coping. It's not really a philosophy, it's just an aphorism, a maxim. It's only a saying, it's not even a sentence, but it reduces everything to manageable size. Theo's advice is this, the bigger you think, the crappier it looks. The bigger you think, the crappier it looks. He explains, Theo does, when you go about, go on about big things, like the political situation, global warming, world poverty. It all looks really terrible, with nothing better, nothing to look forward to. But, he says, when I think small, when I think closer in, you know, the girl I just met, or snowboarding next month, then it looks great. So, this is my motto, think small. I just wonder how many people gravitate to that philosophy of life. Allow me to see the game. Enough income so that I know where my meals are coming from. I got a house over my head. Kind of comfort, convenience. And I got made. Think small. Well, Paul is not thinking small here. He is thinking of the cosmos. And our place in it, in this wonderful grand scheme of salvation history. Have any of you remember seeing Jackson Brown's Life's Little Instruction Book? 518 maxims. Watch a sunrise at least once a year. Compliment three people a day. Remember other people's birthdays. And he may even, Jackson Brown may even be a Christian, this little life's little instruction book, because he says, he says, read the Bible through once a year. 
Maybe he's a Christian. But I just think that you can't reduce life down to a few soundbite, sage aphorisms or maxims. You need the big picture. You need Paul's largeness. So, I mean, just personally, are you more like Theo or you're more like Paul when it comes to this uh, scope of perspective that Paul outlines here in his uh, beginning praise? People today are talking about rebranding Christianity, that these words don't fly. Words that you see here in this text of predestined, adopted to sonship, praise of his glorious grace, the riches of God's grace. I don't think, though, we can do without the theology of this praise. We need this kind of blessing, this kind of benediction. Picture the student walking into some of your classrooms. And what you are lecturing on is pretty complicated, and it's going to require some thought. And what would be your reaction if the student just closes his notebook and says, well, you know, I I follow the news. i got 10,000 songs on my iPod. Uh, uh, I'm really well-versed in culture, and I can't understand a thing you're saying. What's the teacher supposed to do in a situation like that? Well, I'm really sorry for this. Uh, what, I'm, what I'm trying to do to, for you is uh, um, I apologize deeply. Um, help me to get this more simple for you. No. What's the teacher do? She says, open your notebook up. This is going to be on the exam and get to work. <laughs> well, I think that that's somewhat true with, with the theology that has been revealed to us in the Word, it isn't real simple. It isn't real sound bite-ish. It requires something. It isn't easily explainable either. You have to move into. I think you actually really do need the Spirit of God in Christ to convince people of this truth. So no one learns physics by being born in the West. And no one learns the Christian faith by just being born in the Christian West, supposedly. I don't know how user-friendly we can make this. I think we can be exceedingly seeker-sensitive. But I don't know how user-friendly we can make this theology. Notice some of the words, chosen, predestined, loved, adopted, redeemed, forgiven, and sealed. And how each one of those, in a sense, requires a a certain sort of unpacking and understanding. But I don't think Paul really meant for us to pause now and decipher those words. I kind of think he meant for this to kind of wash over us like an overture in a symphony. And it's something of the beauty of the integration of all of this truth that is played out for the believer at the outset of his spiritual direction. I call it kind of a benediction with a beat. The doxology, this doxology draws believers out of themselves and into thanksgiving and praise. And Paul sort of sets a rhythm. Now look at this passage, and let me read it 
And I want you to keep track of all of the in Christ phrasing. As I read it, keep track of that in Christ phrasing. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with the seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. I suggest to you that if this were a rock piece, if the rhythmic praise were rock music, the in Christ would be that downbeat. In Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. Now, it's also, to me, interesting, uh, the in Ephesus, put in a ratio of 1 to 10, 12, 13, 14, kind of depending on how you count the in Christ. Uh, I wonder if we can learn something from that. The ratio of in Ephesus to in Christ. Let's say it's 10 to 1. A little more than that. But 10 to 1. I wonder if the in Christ reality could impress us 10 times to the in IU reality. Or the in the convalescent home reality. Or in the almost got my PhD reality that the circumstances and situation that we find ourselves in and I would emphasize are very significant this is a down to earth real world application of the faith you really are in a place out of which you will minister out of which you will grow deeper in your communion with God in which you will really suffer the in Ephesus reality is a real concrete historical reality but compare that reality to the tenfold reality of being in Christ. As that which defines you, identifies you, gives you purpose, gives you relationship. I think this is a wonderful uh, understanding that Paul lays out for us. You're in a broken, dysfunctional, disillusioning home. Yes, true, factual. But that, place that in the ratio of, uh, to the significance of being in Christ for one's identity. 
for one's solidarity with the believing community. It really changes. This is what I think the praise, the doxology, that is foundational to the doctrine in the second chapter is so important to get a hold of. And then the, the theme that, uh, well, I mean, the other musical types, I think, are also here, sort of this country-western uh, three-point, uh, simple three-chord progression, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, chosen, blessed, chosen, predestined, before time, in time, future time. Uh, if I were preaching this, I'd probably have this down so that you'd be really impressed with how I got it off. But uh, I just found something of the rhythm in Ephesians that we needed to pay attention to. The prepositions, if you look at the prepositions, the to, of, in, with, before, for, through, into, according to, all of that almost has like a jazz quality to it. No break. Just an, an ongoing, pulsating praise that makes us think of uh, kind of this melody, this benediction with the beat. Notice the harmony of according to his good pleasure, in accordance with the riches of God's grace, according to his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ, according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. Everything by plan, everything in accordance with his will, all of it contained within his purpose, Nothing left out of the triune God's work on our behalf. It's God who chooses. It's God who predestines. It's God who blesses. It's God who redeems. It's God who forgives. And herein lies our identity. You know, it's sometimes popular for us to suffer from various neuroses and complexes and insecurities don't want to make light of that. I think it's important to discern the impact that life and situations and relationships have had on us. Sometimes it's very genetically, we're prone to this sense of insecurity. But if we might, even with all of our insecurities and all of our concerns and difficulties, if we could come and settle here on this identity forging description of what God in Christ has done. And this is what you and I confess and we are baptized. We belong to a body of believers. We're saying in effect that this really is true. And if we then say that it is true, I think it really does have very practical, personal, psychological and behavioral impact on our life. Should I stop there and uh, open it up for any kind of comments that you want to make? Would you review again those threefold ideas? You mean the, the, the country Father, western yeah. <laughs> yeah. country western notion? The idea of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is a pattern. The blessed, chosen, and predestined. The before time, and let me explain that before time, in time, and future time for you, okay? 
in uh, verse 4, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless. And that's the before time mention. In time comes in verse 9, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth and under Christ. That's the uh, end time, the revelation of the gospel. And then the future time comes right at the end. When you believe, you are marked in him, in the Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory until the redemption of those who are God's possession. So the past, all the way to the past, before the creation of the world, the strategic timing, the times have reached their fulfillment, and then the final time until the redemption of all those who are in God's possession, in time, before time, in time, and future time. Any other question or comment? David. When Paul wrote this, did he use an eraser or was it just string Well, I, it's hard for me to imagine that uh, he just sat down and and flowed this out because it is it's so woven. On the other hand, this is a terribly difficult passage to memorize. I don't know if any of you have tried. To memorize Ephesians 1, 1 through 14. I, I have tried now for years. The I get thrown off with the repetitive patterns of in accordance, in according, in accordance, and the purpose, and the you know it just and it's almost as if it does give you this sort of stream of worship consciousness, and you wonder if Paul was so accustomed in speaking in so many places about what the gospel meant and leading with this doxology that this really was a, his secretary was taking this down really fast as he said it um, but it is wonderfully artfully crafted at the same time yes that when he uses the word chosen, that he's not, he's more defining the position that he's placed us in instead of trying to emphasize uh, uh, his decision. Do you understand what I'm saying? Well, as chosen the means? Yeah, as, as opposed to chosen the we, person? No, that we are chosen. It's our status more than our. Uh, you've been chosen. You have not been. Uh, when I look at this and when I see it, Mary predestined. It, it seems to me that he's defining our inheritance in Christ uh -huh. more than he's defining. Oh, I. I'm. It's not about that. It's about the position he's raised us to instead of determining where we're going. Oh, that's certainly uh, 
I think, an important and helpful way of looking at it. Obviously, these are words of uh, confidence-building words. These are encouraging words. These are comforting words. These aren't uh, bringing in a kind of theological debate about who's chosen and who's not chosen. These are words delivered to a beleaguered minority congregation of believers who feel insignificant and small. And Paul is addressing them, I think, so as to encourage and strengthen and build up their confidence. The implications now, I mean, and this is where Romans will take chosen and predestined and explore it in ways that we find more complicated but in valid ways. I just don't think there's anything that happens that is apart from the sovereignty of God. And within that sovereignty, I think there's tremendous freedom that is part of that sovereignty. And, uh, you know, it, it's not unlike, I mean, it's a really, it's, it's about a, a zillion steps down, but the way we parent, and we've chosen, and there's nothing that we wouldn't do to express love for our children. But they don't always get it. And, uh, you know, I, I, well, to me that's a helpful analogy to see the parenting aspect of the, the complete love and the idea of choosing. Of course, you know, we do all of that in our fallible, weak, sinful ways. Uh, but nevertheless, I, I think that we express that love and we see the various reactions of our children to that. Some thrive on it, some resist it. For some, it takes a long time for them to come around and see just how nicely they've been chosen. Um, <laughs> but I mean, these are dynamics that are there. But I think it is really, they are not the sort of, it's not a polemic at all. It's an ironic statement of beauty of how God has included us. It's a very inclusive kind of passage. Uh, you've seen the side of Africa and you've seen the side of this country here. And you commented about how Paul wrote this book to a beleaguered church. And, and we can kind of see that in genre. A beleaguered group of people there. And they were sick with taking in and enjoying it. But what about people in this country who don't necessarily see themselves as beleaguered? How do they receive this by truth? I mean, where's, where's the conflict there? How does that work then? Well, but I wonder if here in Bloomington, if you don't feel as a, uh, as a follower of the Lord Jesus, as a disciple, if you don't feel a little outnumbered, if you don't feel like you belong to, quote, kind of the party in power, uh, that your worldview runs counter to the worldview of the university. Uh, if you don't, I think you should. I think you should feel that you're out of step with your community. Uh, and that it doesn't, I mean, this is not Christian America. I don't want to go off on that. Uh, I do think that we should and can develop a a, a, a very friendly, countercultural, loving, humble, gentle understanding of the identity of the believer. And that person is out of sync with this culture. 
and has an identity that's rooted here, not in a political ideology. This is not politically ideological. And so it's, it's not right-wing, left-wing. This is an identity that is far greater than anything political. So I, I guess, I, Tim, I guess I think I see application here in the worlds in which you live. And I hope you kind of live in those worlds as missionaries, conveying a gospel message at work, university, at school. I think that that would be the opportunity that you have here may not be as clear and distinct here in Bloomington as it is in Manhattan or as it is in uh, Carpenter. But uh, it's still, I think, nevertheless, very real, the distinctive identity that's rooted in this kind of being blessed and chosen, predestined, forgiven, and redeemed. And then we work from there. Addie. Well, and I think it's really important to feel the chosenness Mm -hmm. within the solidarity of the believing community. Um, Kathy and Tim, sure, I'll take the question. The story will be. Blessed uh, in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing. I think that's Paul's way of saying we've got it all completely covered. There is no place to escape the blessing of God. Blessed in the heavenly realms, your place before the presence of God is secure because of Christ. And I think that's what Paul means. Not a separating earth and heaven in some sort of compartments. Well, you're blessed in heaven, but you're not blessed on earth. But it's with this blessing of the presence of God assured that then that ought to free us up. This life is a temporary sojourn, and we've got it all covered. And uh, he's going to refer to that type of big picture understanding in a number of ways. Does that make you mean in Ephesians 6, where yeah. we're wrestling not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, against the rulers of darkness? Or well, at the end of chapter 1, it's very true. Well, I do think it's important. And I guess to me, this is what uh, Paul is uh, underscoring the all encompassing comprehensiveness of the blessing. This verse in verse 13, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, is a very meaningful verse for uh, a person that uh, Kathy and Tim Bayless know, along with us, by the name of Norman Musawi. Norman is on the board for the David Mensa, David and Brenda Mensa grid project in Ghana. 
uh, a South African, uh, well, from from Rhodesia, in Zimbabwe. Uh, and Norman and Virginia and I have had contact with Norman over the years. He's uh, a wonderfully gentle, humble, short, very wise Christian man. And, uh, you know, I was remarking to Norman, because whenever Norman speaks, people listen. He doesn't talk a lot, but when he talks, it's just really worth hearing. And wouldn't you like to be like that? But uh, <laughs> I talk too much to be like that. Uh, but Norman, you just really listen. You listen to his prayers. And the prayers are just so, so genuine, so real, so from the heart. And I was remarking about this to Norman. Uh, and he said, uh, I've never told you my story, have I? I said, no, I don't know your story. And he said, well, I, I was the oldest of seven children in Rhodesia. I was sent to my grandmother, almost died from malnutrition. And I remember very vividly as a child growing up, and next door was the shaman, the tribal shaman, who uh, would pronounce curses in great fear of the spiritual power that was felt in, in that village that his grandmother lived. He does remember uh, at least going inside an Anglican church for a special evangelistic meeting years ago when he was a boy. He remembers uh, them singing, Nothing But the Blood of Jesus. But he said he went to school and he was very bright and number one in his class and uh, went through university, again, scoring exceedingly well, received a medical scholarship to study in England, and went to England and became a doctor, all the while drinking heavily and very, very promiscuous. He said, I met people who wanted to corrupt me as much as I wanted to corrupt them. And he said, I just lived an awful life. And he said, I have deep scars of how I have scarred people. But you, knowing Norman, you would never, ever imagine this kind of life. Well, uh, he left England, came back to uh, Rhodesia, and in Rhodesia, he just hit on all the nurses. Exceedingly promiscuous. He said, I was drinking heavily, and then he met Endra, his wife-to-be, and realized that he couldn't continue this kind of promiscuity and ever expect to marry somebody. So he, he curved the, the sexual promiscuity and started dating Indra. And they married. They had two twin boys. King Toronto and specialized in pediatric cardiology. Again, doing brilliantly. Hired at the Hospital for Sick Children's in Toronto as a pediatric cardiologist still drinking heavily, still filled with guilt about his uh, very promiscuous uh, decade, and uh, drinking to assuage the sense of guilt, overworking compulsively, coming to the breaking point. And Andrew said, we've just got to get away. And so they went for a vacation. They left him in the hotel room. She took the kids down to the pool. He was in toxic withdrawal from the alcohol, and he said, I've, I've never had such a horrible experience. The voice is just raging in my head. 
about taking my life and ending it. He said, I, I cried out, Jesus, I've had enough. And in that moment, now keep in mind, nobody is witnessing to him. He is having no Christian communication in all of this. There is no Christian exposure. As far as he knows, nobody is praying for him. He shouts out, Jesus, I've had enough. And he said, in that moment, he said something really changed. Now, not entirely. But he said it was a turning point for him. And Andrew sort of said, Norman, you're different. Uh, he said he still wrestled for three more months. And then on one autumn day, he said, suddenly I felt really totally Transformed. He said, I, I, I couldn't touch alcohol. I loved Christian music. And I realized that I was going to have to relearn completely how to live life. No Christian influence. Somebody told him, you need to see Ebenezer Sikakani, who was a friend of mine in Toronto, a South African pastor. Somebody, he said, somebody, you ought to connect with him. And they realized that Norman was a Christian. He met Ebenezer Sikakane, and Ebenezer opened the book of Ephesians and started personally leading him through. And Norman says, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Norman said in that first Bible study, there were no more precious, no more powerful words for me than those words. And now you, I mean, Norman just strikes you as a Christian statesman. Uh, and uh, the wonderful transformation that has taken place. That turns this, you know, from words into truth, into personal transformation. Uh, wonderful, the description of that. Well, Dan, how are we doing? Do you... You want? You're doing great. <laughs> How are we? <laughs> I, can, I can move on into 15 now, and uh, we can do the prayer along with the praise, or we can take a break. We can, I don't. How are you doing? <laughs> move on. Keep going. Five minute break. Five minute break. That's what I'm hearing. So. Five minute break. <laughs> The rest of the band, what is it? Oh, we've got to get the statue. I think I was just...